0: Welcome to the Playing Injured Podcast, where we have conversations that help people turn their adversity into their advantage. Welcome to another episode of Playing Injured. I, I'm really excited for this episode. I, I get the opportunity to interview Eric Edmonds. Uh, he's internationally known as a business speaker, a serial entrepreneur, uh, and then he's the founder of a very fast-growing health coaching company, Wild Fit. I appreciate you coming on, Eric.
1: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I appreciate you. So, like I said, you are a, you are a serial entrepreneur, meaning that you've done so much, and as I've researched you. You're one of the most interesting people that I've seen and all the things that you've done. So, real quick, I, I was reading today that humans in our minds and our brains, um, we absorb negativity seven times easier than positivity. It's safer Me, that way. Yeah, it's safer that way. And we're wired that way, right? Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people in my early 20s be afraid and have a lot of worry in their life, right? Can you talk about why it's safer that way? Why we are wired that way, and and how can people close that gap to start to actually put action into the things that they want to do?
1: Yeah, you know it's safer that way because um, let's say you're um, under some stress, or you're a little, or you're injured, or um, you're or you're suboptimal in some way. Right, And remember that we spent 99% of our history without Netflix and without internet and without electricity. We spent most (laughs) of it, you know, in the wilderness. Right. And so here you are in this suboptimal state of mind or suboptimal physiology. And in that state of mind, you'd better be careful, right? You you better be careful because you're not at top condition. And so the minute you're not at top condition, your body will go into self-preservation mode and it will become more vigilant and even maybe hyperventual vigilant. Now what happens is, if you imagine that you see a rock, and the rock is kind of tawny colored, it mm-hmm. is safer for you to assume that that rock is a lion, right? Than for <laughs> you to assume that it's a rock, right? Because you see, you're injured or you're low energy. Now, if you're at full strength and you're there with your buddies and you're walking along and you see a lion, you don't give a shit if it's a lion or a rock. You got it handled, right? But if you are if you are off your game, if you're if you're facing some stress, if you've got too much cortisol in your system, then you're gonna see a stick and go, that's a snake. And it's better that way. It's right. better that way. But the trouble is, is that it's not better that way anymore. It used to be safer. It used to be a survival strategy. But the problem we have today is that now life is so damn safe that we're making up horror stories. Wow. We live in the safest times in the history of any time ever. And, 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 and we've got this old chemical system that fills us with fear, makes us pessimistic and allows us to absorb negativity so much quicker when really we live in the safest time ever and we have more reason than we've ever had to be optimistic and excited
0: about the future. Right, right. hundred percent. So why, how, how can people start to close the gap? So once they became aware of that, right, this fear is fake. This fear is from evolutionary um, kind of how we've, uh, you know, our, our mind has changed over time. How can people start to say hey, why am I worrying? What are some in-time things they can do before they have that crazy speech or they want to start this business opportunity? What can they do to actually get over that fear?
1: Yeah, so it's funny you say close the gap. There's a there's a principle that we talk about in Wildfit called the evolution gap. And the evolution gap is the the the, the a gap that we've identified that exists between the pace of change in our um, technological and social development and our genetic development. So two some odd million years ago, humans invent fire, changes everything. Then sometime after that, bows and arrows come along, changes everything. Then we figure out agriculture, changes everything. But in the Mm -hmm. meantime, those changes happen so quickly that we really don't have a chance to respond genetically. So we've got this old paleolithic system for managing stress and fear. And we live in this new neolithic time and what that means is that our autopilot can't really be trusted. Our autopilot was programmed for a different context. Mm. So what does that mean? Now something happens and it happens and the, 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 the system looks at it and often overreacts. I, 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 I a mean, Silly example I often use. You receive a legal summons in the mail and you look at it, you see the law firm address on there and you're like, oh, crap. Right. And the minute you see that, your body, remember your ancestors never got a legal summons. They never got a <laughs> shitty email. They never had somebody cut them off in traffic. They don't, they all they got is another tribe was coming to kill me, or the lion was coming, or the snake was coming, or the rain was coming. Like, ne- whatever they were facing was actually dangerous. Now you got this letter in your hand. And your body responds with the same chemical reaction as for an actual danger, which means that your body is now slowing down your blood. So if you get cut, you won't bleed to death. And it's increasing your blood pressure. So you have greater oxygen flow to deal with fighting and flight and all this kind of stuff. And in the meantime, you're holding an envelope. None of that is helpful, right? (laughs) So when you say, what can we do to close the gap? One of my very favorite books, the book that's maybe had the largest impact on my sort of life philosophy is a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, for those that don't know the story, Victor Frankl was, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist and, and and ended up spending four years in three different concentration camps, lost his pregnant wife, lost his parents, lost everybody he knew, and ended up writing a book um, about what he called meaning based therapy that when you can find enough meaning in your life, you can survive anything. And um, and, and he says in this book that there's a moment between stimulus and response and if you can if you can if you can identify that moment you can inject some consciousness in that moment that's where all human freedom exists so right now when somebody say as your your example they're about to go on stage and give a presentation they should take a look and go hang on a second i'm freaking the hell out and what is actually going to happen to me nothing no they don't even throw tomatoes at people anymore like <laughs> it's, it's it's like nothing is going to happen but yet your adrenal system is, is like firing like you actually have a threat. Now, the problem is if you're about to walk on stage in front of 500 people or 50 people or five people or 5,000 people, it doesn't matter, you walk up on the stage, if you're full of adrenaline and cortisol, then your mental capacity has been diminished and now you're going to have memory problems and you're going to stress out and you're going to actually create the very nightmare that you've been worrying about. So what do we need to do? We need to override that before it happens. And there's a couple of things we can do. One is that when you breathe really powerfully and deeply, you communicate to every cell in your body that you're safe. Look, animals don't breathe loudly when they're scared. They breathe quietly when they're scared. They don't want to be found. When they're not scared, they breathe properly. Well, then you breathe properly and deeply and that will help calm your entire system. And then there's another thing and that is that really excitement. Like, you know, look, most emotional states are distinct. If you know that somebody, if if I tell you that I've got a friend over here in the other room and they're angry, you can pretty much tell me what their facial expression looks like, what their body looks like. If I tell you got another friend that's depressed, you know, their shoulders are slumped forward. You know, their face is hanging slack. But, you know, if I tell you that I got a friend who's like, you know, excited. Right. And I tell you, I got another friend who's nervous. Those two emotions are basically the same thing, really. They they cause the same sweating on the brow. They cause the same vibration in the belly. They're basically the same motion. The only real difference is the expected outcome. So I would put to you that nervousness is excitement with a negative expectation. Whereas excitement is nervousness with a positive expectation. So now somebody's thinking of going up on the stage, what they should be doing is creating as many images in their mind and movie clips and ideas and thoughts and sounds of how great it's going to be. They should be saying out loud, this is going to be fantastic. This is going to be fantastic. This is going to be fantastic and override the system. Because remember, as you said, we're seven times more likely to soak up the negativity, which means we have to override it. Yes. Override it. You walk on stage
0: and you feel good. Yes. Oh, my God. That's that's absolutely amazing. And so especially with the breathing, I I was watching you talk about breathing, right? Stress from the top of the lungs, whereas uh, I can't remember the example that you gave, but breathing from the bottom of the lungs is what kind of calms yeah, you down it. as far as breathing goes.
1: We got these little, these little hairs in our lungs that extract the oxygen and they're, they're sparsely in the top of your lungs and they're heavily in the bottom of your lungs. Right. So if you're shallow breathing, you're not actually getting that much oxygen out of the breath, out of the, out of the air you're getting. And I, I suspect that that's largely uh, one of the ways that the body has shortcut cortisol production. It's like, oh, we're not getting much oxygen. We better boost the cortisol. And so when you breathe deeply and you fill your whole lungs, you get more oxygen flow and you naturally relax your body. Because again, when animals are afraid, they breathe quietly. quietly when animals yeah. are not afraid, they breathe properly because they're not hiding.
0: Right, oh my goodness, man. I love your energy right now. So let's say this, right? Okay, when, when it comes to playing engine, right? It's a, it's a metaphor for life, going through struggles. Yep. And for, for yourself, you had some health issues um, where you struggled with health and different things like that. What made you get into kind of health and fitness what was the turnaround effect for you when it came to kind of your early 20s and then making that change?
1: 21 years old, then to see all the doctors, all the specialists, nothing's changing. You know, I, I got all the same problems that I've had for almost 10 years, not sleeping well at night, horrible acne, huge allergies, all, and they can't breathe through my own sinuses for all these years, stomach problems. I mean, it just went on and on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one day, a friend of mine said, you got to go to this business seminar. I'm like, okay, I'll go to this business seminar. And it was, uh, it was Tony Robbins. And uh, he was like, you got to go to this Tony Robbins seminar. I go to the seminar. And then on the last day of the seminar, Tony's like, you got to change your relationship with food. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I sat down with some <laughs> friends of mine you know, that they, they kind of introduced me to the whole idea. And, and, and next thing you know, I decided to do a 30-day experiment with food. I decided to not eat so much of that and eat a little bit more of that and just see what happened. And 30 days later... I'd lost 35 pounds and, and all of my symptoms were gone. All of them, all the pain. I was a totally different human being. I landed at an airport. I landed at Johannesburg Airport to visit my mom who was living in South Africa at the time. And I got off the plane. She looked right at me, didn't even recognize me. Then my girlfriend was with me. And my girlfriend had like bright red hair. She says strawberry blonde, but we all know it was red. But the, I'm kidding. That's just in case she's watching. So anyway, uh, um, so, so uh, but my mom saw her, recognized her. And then did the double take and look back at me. And then she realized it was me. And the reason is that my body and face had changed so much that she couldn't even recognize me. Wow. And, 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 my quality of life improved so much that I started getting curious. And I, I actually asked, I've done this many times since, but I actually asked one of my doctors, like, how long did you go to medical school? These six years. And I'm like, like, how much of that time did you spend studying food? None, huh? None. <laughs> and immediately. I'm like, okay, that's a problem right? Like I would not take my car to a mechanic that had not studied oil or, or, or fluids. Like what the hell is this? And, and, and so that is what started my journey is I, I, it was suddenly kind of like, I want you to imagine you're like, you're in a plane and you're, and you go talk to the pilot and you go, Hey, uh, how long did you go to pilot school? Oh yeah. Two years. How much time did you spend on landings? None. Like, ah, I'm going to read everything I can about Landon. I'm taking over, man. And that's kind of what happened to me is I just kind of got this like, shit, if they're not studying it, then I'd better. And if they're not, if they're, it seems to me, and by the way, there are many lovely and amazing doctors out there. They, they all became doctors to do great things. The challenge is that your education system was largely sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. So they, they mostly they're there treating symptoms, not Talking about prevention, yeah. And so that's what started my journey. I started getting on the saying nobody is going to ever care as much about my health as I do. So I better get involved.
0: So I mean, with that being said, nobody, most people don't know what to do with their health. No, most people don't, and it's not our fault. It's just what we've been taught. For me, I grew up in gym class looking at posters that say "Got Milk." You know, yeah. And um, playing basketball growing up, in order to get taller, I need to crush milk. So what do people need to understand about health to have a better quality of life? What's the fundamentally things? You know, let me say this first,
1: is that if anybody has a lifestyle disease, right? Obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, inflammation, autoimmune disease, many of these things are either directly caused by or at least amplified by lifestyle. First thing I want you to think about is why do we call them lifestyle diseases? And I'll give you the answer to this. We call them lifestyle diseases because the government and the food manufacturers want us to call them lifestyle diseases because that way it's our fault. Mm. Understand that what they're doing is they're shifting the blame for their disastrous legislation and regulations, their disastrous manufacturing systems, their broken food production system, their deplorable treatment of animals, their horrible destruction of the environment. They're they're distracting us from all of that by calling it a lifestyle disease. You're going to go to the circus? Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm I really lucky. My little four <laughs> year old, she likes to run away. She likes to run away and join the circus. Luckily I have, I have a trapeze like in my back garden, there's a circus company right there. So she's not running far. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. So in any event, um, you know, we, we, w- when we think about those, the, when we realize that, that y- it isn't your own fault, if you've got one of these issues, the the truth is, is that our education has been hijacked. The the whole idea that you need to have milk happen because the government saw there was a milk surplus, and if they didn't figure out a way to create more demand for milk, then all these f- dairy farmers were going to go out of business. And the reason there were so many damn dairy farmers is that during the World Wars, they made the dairy farmers, they made a lot of farmers convert to dairy so that they could ship powdered milk because it was the cheapest way to ship protein. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, never mind the fact that there was widespread dysentery in the, in the troops, I, which I'm, sur- I, I, I'm certain has a relationship there. But, but in the meantime, you have all these dairy farmers, and the government's like, shoot, if we don't increase the demand... For dairy products, you know what's going to happen is we're going to, you know, we're going to have bankruptcies all over the places. So what we got to do is start getting people to buy more milk. And the next thing you know, all there's all this push and all this lobbying. You know, the the, the company that, that does the lobbying for the dairy industry, it's called the Dairy Management Company. I think there's a guy named Paul Rovey used to run it. I doubt he still is. It's a while since I looked it up. But right. his annual budget was $165 million a year. I'll tell you what, you give me 165 million dollars a year, I'll convince you eating charcoal is a good idea for you. You know, like it's you know and 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 that's what's going on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, so the first thing is what's wrong. The food manufacturing system is broken. I Believe in in what I would call conscious capitalism. I believe that capitalism is the best model that we have at the moment, and that and that the natural extension of capitalism is an evolved form of socialism, where the, the, where we've built the right technology and we've and and so suddenly working does become an option for huge numbers of people. I believe all that, but there are times when capitalism lets us down massively. And one of those areas is in food production, because yeah. here's what's going on. I'm a say I have a food manufacturing company. My goal increase profitability. How am I going to do that? Increase sales. How am I going to do that get people to eat more than they need to eat then i on the other end of my spectrum what i want to do is i want to i want to make sure that they that the cost is as low as possible so what i'm going to do i'm going to i'm going to get everything done as cheap as i can which means i'm going to produce the lowest nutrient dense food possible at the highest possible profit with the people eating as much as possible and if I do that really, really well, then one in three Americans is going to die from heart disease. One in three Americans is going to die from cancer. And another almost one in three is going to die from a diabetes-related disease. And, and, and none of those diseases were in the top 10 100 years ago. Wow. You know, so, so the first thing we got to learn is that the deck is stacked against us, that the food industry is not on our side and the deck is stacked against us. Then the second thing we got to learn. You, you want some paper? <laughs> there you go. Sorry, policy when I'm working at home. Nothing. Always The door's always
0: open for her. <laughs> I so, love it, man. Um, where was I? Uh, the second, I don't know. We You we, we mentioned- Right, we the first thing the- is the
1: deck stacked against you, right? Right. And then the second thing is, where can you get the truth from? Well, there's a really important principle in, in in biological sciences, and it works like this. Any study or any statistic or any information you've ever heard that contradicts evolutionary biology should be suspect. In other words, it's probably bullshit. So, right. for example- If you see some study that says milk is imperative to human health and human existence, and then you take a look and you go, well, wait a second now. For 99.99% of history, humans didn't drink milk. So, bullshit. And and so, what we want to do is we want to look at our evolutionary history and, you know, like, think about it this way. Every species on Earth has, has a diet, an evolved diet. Like, elephants eat what they eat. That's what they eat. And if you change what they eat, they get sick. And we're no different than that. There are very specific nutritional requirements that all humans have. And we we may have different metabolisms and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, we all have the same requirement, vitamin C, vitamin D, you know, all these amino acids. We all have those same requirements and we need to achieve them. And the best way for us to figure out how to achieve them is to look at the way our ancestors have been achieving them for the last, you know, 300,000 years. There's where the clues are.
0: Right. So with that being said, right, you spent a lot of time um, in East Africa with the Hazda, right? Yep. Talk about who the Hazda is for people who don't know. Cause it was new for me when I, when I kind of looked it up and did some research and that's kind of where you got the idea of wild fit, right? And, and we we can see from right here. So this guy here is a Hadza hunter. I shot this video.
1: I've been visiting these guys for about 10 years. And, uh, so I've, as a matter of fact, I was just with them about a month ago. And we, you know, went out hunting and and what have you. And the reason I've been visiting them is that I don't want to like overly romanticize some idea that their lifestyle is our lifestyle. But their lifestyle is almost certainly the closest representation we have to our ancestral lifestyle. And so I've been visiting them over the last 10 years to kind of observe the way they do things, everything from eating to parenting to, you know, coexisting. Like, how how do their cultures work? And it's been really fascinating. But, you know, one of the things that's come out of it is, is that, um, you know, they, they're healthy. They're mm-hmm. healthy. And, and of course their health is now being damaged. It's being damaged because the misguided missionaries are giving them vegetable oils and sugar and crap like that because they think they're doing them a favor and they're not, right. but, uh, and this is, this is nothing new. I mean, uh, um, the guy who, uh, um, I, I believe it was the guy who, um, what's his name now, uh, Banting, who, who, who developed the exogenous insulin. He released a, a, a statement, um, back in the late 1800s saying that he believed that one of the reasons that so many of the native Canadians were dying from things like tuberculosis and so on actually was more to do with the fact that they were eating garbage European foods, even back then they were wow. eating flour and oil and sugar and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I think that again, when we can look at, our ancestral past, and I think the Hadza give us a clue as to what that might look like to some degree, we can learn some things. And here's what we know. What we know is, and and this is, you know, I can't, I I just don't understand why this isn't just straight common sense. But one of the things we know is that humans evolved not only to survive seasonal fluctuation, but to utilize each of the seasons. So Mm -hmm. your purpose has, your body has modes. It goes into winter mode. It goes into summer mode. And if you don't let it do its summer mode thing, you're going to suffer the consequence. If you don't let it do its winter mode thing, you're going to suffer the consequences. But if you learn how those modes work, then you can use them for increased sports performance. You can use them for peak mental performance, for fertility, for optimal health experience. You, you you can feel better. And, and I, so what we have to do is figure out like, Hey, you know, this is what humans typically have eaten over the last, you know, say 300,000 years of sapiens. Uh, this is what we have eaten. This is what we haven't eaten, but also this is when we ate it. like We, mm. you know, we, we, we ate it in a particular way. We, we didn't, you know, we didn't, uh, uh, you know, we didn't, um, uh, we didn't eat fruit year round, for example, our pancreas isn't set up for that. And so when we, when we take a look at those things, we can start to chart out a plan that can create an optimal health experience for somebody, whether it's because they want to lose a bunch of weight and return to health or because they're a professional athlete and they want to to achieve peak performance, um, one of the one of the top polo players in the world went through our program, and he said it just super super improved his performance because all of a sudden he had a level of mental clarity and energy clarity. And polo is pretty bloody physically demanding, by the way. You think
0: the horse well, is doing all the work,
1: but uh, <laughs> it's not the case. <laughs> and um, and and so it's 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 a matter of health, but it's also a matter of peak performance.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's and that's so key. What what people don't realize is how connected uh, food and their gut health is connected to their brain health and, yeah. and their overall overall health. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess winding down, I I, I want to respect your time. As far as health goes, what's some important things that people can take away after they listen to it? Say, hey, I can start to implement these few things to get on the right path. Yeah, um, absolutely, doctor
1: um the first thing is i'm going to share these things with you but i'm going to share them with you on the complete understanding that willpower is a failed system for for behavioral change the way most people do it like i could say eat this 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 and this and don't eat this this and this and you'll agree with me and then three days later you're you're sucking down a pizza and a coke right so so we gotta we gotta talk a little bit about what the rules are and then we can talk a little bit about the psychology of it generally speaking uh humans Um, and I, I say this with all respect for vegetarians and vegans that may have made the decision to not eat animal products, optimally, Optimally, humans would eat the very best quality of the following things, the very best quality. They would eat the best quality meat, fish, dairy products, poultry, and uh, uh, sorry, not dairy products. Delete not deer, that, right. that out. <laughs> they, they would eat the, the very best quality meat, fish, poultry, and eggs that they could get access to, and the very best quality uh, um, uh, fruits and vegetables on a seasonal basis. On a seasonal basis, there's no fruit or vegetable that somebody should be eating every single day. And and then maybe occasionally some nuts and seeds from time to time. And that's about it. Now, anything you add separate to that is superfluous. It's unnecessary. And if it's unnecessary, it's harmful. So then you want to limit that. So, you know, I'm not saying never eat popcorn ever again. I'm just saying, let's not have popcorn every week, right? You know, mm-hmm. you give your body a chance to heal from these things. Now, here's the challenge is that the food industry has hypnotized and bamboozled us. And so we no longer have freedom. We no longer have choice. Somebody comes to your work and says, oh, look, donuts. And your mind goes, oh, I really shouldn't eat those. And then the other part of your mind goes, yeah, but they're free. You know, and the next thing you know, you're scarfing down a donut, right? So th- what we then have to do is we have to work on the psychological principles to deframe what the food industry has done to us. They have bought our holidays. They've sponsored our emotional states. Now, if you had a really good day at work, you got to go get pizza and donuts. And and if you had a really bad day at work, you got to get a tub of ice cream, you know, whatever. Like we, right. we have the, all these rules set up and they created those rules to stop you from thinking consciously because they don't want you to think consciously because consciously you would never put that shit in your body. Mm. Right. So they, they want to take away your conscious thought. And they've done that very effectively through lobbying and marketing and 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 advertising campaigns. And like, look, <laughs> Josh, I don't know if you're a religious guy. I'm not particularly. I just but I did go to an Anglican school. And so we did a lot of Bible study. And so I just I, I remember the nativity scene, you know, the whole Christmas thing. I remember that. Yeah. You know? There's the whole Mary. Mary gets pregnant. Nobody really knows how that happened. And, you know, and then, then, then there's the you know. Then the baby is born in the manger, and then the wise men are there, and the wise men bring frankincense myrrh, and gold. They did not bring candy and candy canes and 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 Christmas cake. That's not what they brought. Right. But somehow. <laughs> Now we have to have those things to celebrate Christmas if we're, if for those of us who celebrate Christmas. Right. And then uh, you might've seen the, Mel, the, the, the the sequel to the nativity scene. Uh, the, 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 I think Mel Gibson produced it, but you know, there's the whole like, you know, Jesus and the cross and, 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 and I remember that story too. You know, they went and got him, they made him carry the cross through the town. They put him up on the cross and the nails and it's a very unpleasant story, but I don't remember any chocolate. Right. There was no chocolate <laughs> in the story. Right. And, and yet now there are people who feel like well it's not Easter if there isn't chocolate well that's rubbish Easter has nothing to do with chocolate except insofar as that the chocolate company sponsored Easter and 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 bought that so so we we really want to work on understanding all those psychological principles so that we can carve out freedom if any, and by the way you know at, at getwildfit.com we have a 14-day psychological hit program yeah. you for 14 days you go through some exercises and by the end of the 14 days you're like I just don't want to eat that thing or I'll eat it when I do want it. Like we want, the the truth is what we're all about, Josh, is is what we call food freedom. You Mm -hmm. should be able to eat what you want, when you want, as much as you want and not feel any guilt about it. But also you should be able to not eat what you wish you wouldn't eat and have no regret. And that's really
0: what we, what we work to create for people. And from that, you can build health. I love that. I love that. Well, Eric, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this is very fun, actually. I learned a lot. Uh, I love your energy, your intensity, and I appreciate you, you you mapping out the time for, for us to chat. Hey, I'm really glad you made the space and, and uh, I love the work you're doing. Keep up the good work. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Our brand design and strategy is by Tessa at fivefootstudios.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Five Foot Studios. Our music is by Lakey Inspired. Go ahead, and subscribe so that you never miss an episode and click the five stars to give us a rating. And most importantly, keep playing it.